0: I don't necessarily see fear as a barrier i almost see fear as a door that you've got to open to get through to get to what's on the other side
1: hi everyone and welcome to another episode of the wonderful leaders podcast today i am with tim nelson who is the co-founder and ceo of Hope for Justice and Slave Free Alliance. Hope for Justice is an international charity working to to bring to an end modern slavery and human trafficking and offers an effective and proven model that is replicable, scalable, and award-winning. Looking forward to finding out more about that. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Stan. Great to be here. So reading that bio, it sounds like a a day in, in the life of Tim is a busy one. But what does a typical day in the life of tim nelson look like
0: yeah i mean every day is different uh i will, I will say you know up front um if, if anybody thinks running a charity is easy uh they should give it a go um i think the reality is it's it's probably moving from one difficult conversation to another difficult conversation and trying to keep positive in between and really that's what i see leadership as um in in the real sense but But it, you know, outside of family and ensuring kids get to school, it's trying to make sure that I can, I can focus on what are the most, the most engaging points of the day that are going to bring the biggest impact to what we're doing, dealing with problems, challenges, concerns, but no, no one day is ever the same as the previous.
1: So Tim, tell us a little bit about your formative years Leading up to, to what you do now, but particularly sort of life growing up in Northern Ireland and um, what was that like?
0: Yeah, so life at Northern Ireland for me was very different. I grew up in quite an unusual family in that my mum was uh, principal private secretary to the head of the Northern Ireland office. And, and with that came some challenges, um, security challenges and issues that we wouldn't normally uh, have seen in people's families. Um, my father ran a um, a large business that was um, a contracting business, doing painting and decorating in schools and hospitals. So he was busy with pressures and stresses of running his own business. But mum was also in that in that space of of kind of making a bigger impact in society. So again, our approach to what life was like was very different. So instead of going to a high school local to where I grew up, my parents put us on a a bus for an hour and 20 minutes to get into the center of Belfast, uh, to go to one of the best schools in Northern Ireland so that we would have the best opportunity academically for us, um, be around, um, some of the best thinkers and, and, and families and, and see life from a very different perspective. So I think what, what became very interesting for people is that when I was growing up, my, my parents let me go for an extended period of time on my own, at the age of 15 over to Malaysia and Australia. And then, uh, when I was 16, I went to Venezuela, Guyana and Brazil. Um, you know, I, wow. I, I, these, these aren't kind of common things, but we were brought up in a family that would see the world, make the biggest impact that you possibly can, and don't just accept that things happen, look to try and make a bigger difference with whatever talent and ability you've been given, bring the biggest impact, always turn up, always do your best, always look to try and give of yourself for others, um, that kind of mindset. So we were brought up to, to see that we wouldn't necessarily stay in Northern Ireland to go to university here, but we were brought up to, you'll go to university in England, you go and do a great job, get the best academic start, and then kind of wherever God would take you from there.
1: So was, was that travel quite formative in sort of shaping your no. worldview and your experience of,
0: of, of the world around you? I think so. I think I think when you see people in a different setting and you realize that, you know, you always get told the place that you're living has got complexities and challenges and issues. But, you know, you, you take a, a, a small trip to a place like Malaysia and you quite quickly realize that there is real poverty and there is real challenge. Uh, with going to Australia, I think I learned a lot about myself in terms of being in periods where I was on my own, not necessarily lonely, but alone. And those times to, to really reflect on what do you want and what do you want to do and, and the benefit that people have to your world, how enriching they are. Going to Venezuela gave me a completely different view on the world and um, yeah, give me an appetite to want to see more and do more to help people all over the world.
1: But then after that experience, I believe from what I've read, you didn't always want to be the CEO of a non-profit. That actually it was a different career path that was... That you know that you were lining up for yourself or that was lined up for you so tell us a little bit about that
0: yeah i mean again growing up in the family that i did i had this crazy aspiration whenever i was growing up that i would initially that i would be a ceo of a blue chip company that was the big vision right. i had and and i kind of looked at it and said but what can i do and i'd seen amazing films and you know growing up watching tv you you, you kind of get caught up in different opportunities and i I saw one which was around potentially becoming a stockbroker. And I was trying to research it and, you know, pre-internet days, trying to work out what you could do, looking at prospectuses and things I'd, I'd come up with the mindset. Well, I could go and study technology and I could be a technology stockbroker. I could make a phenomenal amount of money. I could go and meet big businesses and maybe through that I could make a bigger impact in the world. So I came across England to university to study technology. And when I got quite way through that degree, got offered jobs in London or Manhattan to work as a stockbroker, but really I'd got practically involved on the ground with helping people where I was. I didn't really want to make that step, even though the rest of my siblings were in London. I took the choice of staying and going into banking and, you know, successfully saw a, a significant impact off the back of that made a lot of friends and, yeah, enjoyed that part of the journey. So at which
1: stage of the journey then did you really become aware of the scale and effectively effects of the problem of, you know, modern slavery and human trafficking?
0: So post working in, in banking, I had one of my clients had invited me to be an advisor to an offshore investment trust in America. We were looking to raise 200 million and invest that into high tech stocks all over companies in America. And, um, had a night in Los Angeles spare a friend of mine who was working for a children's charity out there introduced me to a person who, when I asked them what they did for a job, they introduced themselves as a slave hunter. And I was, I was kind of mesmerized by someone saying that they worked as a slave hunter, I'd never heard of that before. But this chap whilst we were out for dinner was on the front to Condoleezza Rice, who was working for the Bush administration at that time. And he was arguing about the human trafficking register and about where India was. And he had seen in the week before in Mumbai, he had seen girls in cages that were being shipped all over India. And this is 2007. And I've never heard of anything like this before. And he pulled out his camera and showed me the images of the girls. And the challenge that he threw to me was when I, I looked to try and give him some money or something was, I don't need your money. I just need you to give your life to this issue and to see what you can do to try and help these individuals. Wow. And that really was the moment that was pivotal in changing my perspective on this issue globally.
1: So you were on a business trip in the US and you go for dinner with, with someone you've never met before, you, you, you weren't, you weren't, it wasn't a previous friend or contact, and that night you became aware of just this, this whole world that you didn't know existed.
0: Yeah, and it, it, it kind of was one of those things, and I don't know, people have talked to me before about issues and about things that really change people's lives. But for me, I just couldn't shake it. I was kind of caught up in this mindset of, well, I do need to do something, and what, ca- what can I do? You know, with the gifts and abilities I've got, with what's at my hand and age, you know, it was a super complex time for us. I'd got married a couple of years before we were expecting our first child. I'd bought a piece of land. I was building a house. It, you know, none of this is convenient at this time. It's like the most inconvenient time ever to go to my wife and go, going to need to give a lot of my time and attention to something. that I've, I've met a group of people and, and we're interested about potentially um, putting on an event, setting up an organization. There's massive risk we could lose our house if this goes wrong. When your wife is heavily pregnant, that's not really what she wants to hear. So I think a lot of it was just trying to manage the moment I was in as well as the opportunity, because there's a lot of excitement when you're setting something up from the beginning, it's like you're getting to pioneer, do something that's never been done before. It's, it's probably the, the, the honeymoon phase of any business. Any organization any charity is that moment where you're right at the inception point and you get to dream and you get to to get to build differently an amazing group of people um a chap called Ben who had the vision to put on the event and and I, this group of of us that come together were like kind of we knew we needed to do something but we didn't know what we needed to do to try and address this so right we naturally thought the number one thing to do is to you know kind of put on an event and tell people about this issue. And there were kind of 11 months from when we formed this group. And 11 months later, we hired the NEC, which is a an arena in, in outside Birmingham. And we managed to get 5,884 people to come to our first event. And that was, when your house is on the line, that's a minor miracle in itself.
1: Well, I mean, what an incredible startup story, actually, you know seeing a, a problem and coming up with a solution but actually crystallizing the community i mean nearly six thousand people at effectively was it like a launch event and kind of like hey we're launching this organization here's the problem get involved was it you know a bit more complex than
0: that but maybe a little bit less than that we weren't necessarily leaning on that we're forming an organization we were more leaning on the fact that we want to tell people about this issue maybe if we te- more tell more right. time tell more people about it maybe we can find a solution to this and um, I mean I I still look back to it and think wow you know we put this (laughs) the small group of us put this together pulled on favors some amazing work that we went into trying to tell every single person we could people bringing coaches of people you know the the reality for all of us that were involved is no one lived close to this arena so like we're all two three hours away from it so it's not like you can just pull on favors from friends to just drop in it required us to put some heavy lifting together for people to buy tickets for for us to try and make it commercially um i mean that the organization has grown up massively since then but i i think the the amount of money that we needed to raise to put on that very first event is and we had 11 months to try and gather that funds together is pretty much what we have to gather in each week now to fund the organization so and and kind of coming up to our our 15th birthday, since we did that event, it's, it's humbling to see how far we've come. Amazing.
1: Just backtracking a little, how did your wife receive this? You've gone, you've gone to the US dealing with technology, talking about stockbroking, and then you've come back talking about this whole modern slavery, human trafficking piece. What did your wife think? How did she receive that?
0: I'm, I'm the type of person who she knows I'm all in. If I'm right. if I'm gonna go do something, I'm all in and and like I've done stuff that most people wouldn't do. So like I told you about the traveling side of things, but when I finished university, myself and a friend decided that we were gonna go into property. And uh I think in the first two years we managed to get to the point where we had eleven properties and kind of the that required us to take out short-term borrowing on credit card and loans. And I think at that stage I had hundred and sixty thousand on short-term credit cards and loans, um, to just wow. do this. So her experience of me is someone that's going to say, if I'm committed, if I'm in, I'm all in, right? But also that I'm I'm not someone who would shy away from risk. And I think a lot of people don't ever want to go and do the things that they know that the burning things that they want to achieve, whether it's launching a business, getting involved in a in a project and a venture. Most people shy away from that because of fear, but I'm a lot of the time. I, I don't necessarily see fear as a, a barrier. I almost see fear as a door that you've got to open to get through to get to what's on the other side. Brilliant. So, in in answer, her her response to me was more kind of well, whatever you're going to go and do, that's fine. But like, I'm 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 got this baby on the way. I've got to focus on this and and you've got to make sure we've got the house done by the time this baby arrives. <laughs> deal so. Right. Yeah, yeah. just a lot of that meant that I didn't necessarily have necessarily the support that you would normally expect from a partner in that process. There was a sense of kind of if you're in this, you're in this, that's great, but but you know, don't come back and tell me we're losing our house.
1: Yeah, understandable. Yeah, absolutely. That's amazing. <laughs> now Tim, uh, we've obviously we're, we're talking around what you do now modern slavery and human trafficking now it's a term that you know most people listen to podcasts would have heard of but not necessarily fully understand what it means and how it plays out so could you give us a little insight into i suppose the kind of landscape how does it look what is the world that you see that potentially we don't see
0: yeah so if i start with what is modern day slavery because that's probably a good place to to kind of as a precursor modern slavery was def- defined by the Palermo Protocol in the year 2000, and it covered um, five core areas internationally. It covered sexual exploitation, that's where individuals who are held primarily in brothels against their will. It covered domestic servitude, that's individuals who are slaves in homes doing household chores, not allowed to leave. It also covered uh, labor trafficking or labor exploitation, um that's where individuals are working in business, in agricultural settings, in manufacturing settings, forced against their will to, to manufacture goods for other people. It covers forced marriage and it also covers kind of organ harvesting, those individuals who are taken for organs that are in their bodies. This is a an issue globally, is estimated by the ILO, the International Labour Organization, to be somewhere in the region of forty nine point six million people globally that are held against their will and in that space to put it in context that's more people now than at any time in human history and it's super complex so in the same way as you might think of cancer there are multiple types of cancer but this term cancer kind of scoops them up modern day slavery is a broad term that covers a range of issues but it it generally is starting from a place where someone is vulnerable because there's a precondition that they're dealing with that they meet someone who has a promise, something, the promise of work, promise of opportunity, and then they're tricked. Those are the kind of key steps that people take along the way. Uh, and then in that space, they're, they're held against their will. So to give you a couple of examples that might be helpful for people listening. If you imagine one of the first girls that we rescued, uh, was a girl who'd been in Riga in Latvia, she'd applied for a job in the UK as an au pair to work with a family in Southampton. She arrived in Southampton, met this chap in a hotel who had said, he's got some stuff in the hotel to take back to the house. When she went to the hotel room, he threw some underwear for her to put on. She said, I'm not here for that. I'm here for a legitimate job. He beat her and then 10 men walked into to that room and brutally abused her. Um, she was held for almost five years in a brothel against her will when she tried to jump out of a first-floor window, uh, she broke her leg and the trafficker brought her back up, pulled her by the hair, put her back on the bed with broken leg for the next person to come in, servicing man after man after man. And that that's a common occurrence in the UK. It's a common occurrence globally. Uh, the estimates are that one in 10 men will use a prostitute within their life in the UK, and there just aren't the number of girls who want to go into prostitution. So girls are predominantly groomed manipulated, coerced into a position where they are sexually exploited. Uh, Another example to give you would be, um, an example of, um, forced labor. Uh, we had a case that we heard about in the West Midlands in 2015, where uh, an organization, we had trained to spot the signs, spotted two individual victims. We developed the intelligence, which was around in business supply chains. Individuals were coming in from Poland. These people were being brutally beaten, starved, you know, kept in a home together. Off the back of it, we found a further 50, 51 victims. And by the time Operation Fort came to court, there were over 400 individual victims that were working for major multinational businesses in their manufacturing settings and agricultural settings and and kind of held against their will. So to, in this, in the context to give you for the UK... Last year, there were nearly 17,000 individuals that were fined and brought into the National Referral Mechanism. 40% of those individuals would be children. And the number one place where people were trafficked from is the UK. These are not just international individuals that are trafficked into the UK to, to service people. They are UK nationals that are beaten, coerced into all manner of exploitation across all of those fields.
1: Trafficked from
0: the UK. Within the UK. Within the UK. So wow. we're talking about people who we're we're talking about people who grew up in the UK and there was someone that has got to them and exploited them. Wow.
1: Now Tim, you mentioned a couple of couple of um times there around the sort of role of business uh, you know, in this whole, you know, in this whole area. What are kind of some of the roles and ways in which, I suppose, entrepreneurs and leaders can play in this whole area
0: in within the UK? Well, we, off the back of that case in 2015, we worked with Accenture to look at how we could help business and how we could help individuals. And we set up a division of Hope for Justice called Slave Free Alliance, uh, which works with companies to try and help them address this issue. Most of the time, we're finding between 70 and 80% of all the companies we're dealing with have some issue either within their business or within their supply chains internationally. And currently have 120 major multinationals on board, including 14 of the FTSE 100. But if you've got an entrepreneur or you've got a business individual and they're considering, you know, they want to address this within their business. Most of the time, most individuals don't know where to start. It's super complex. The thought of seeing their supply chain when quite often they don't see beyond the first tier of the suppliers here right. they're working with, we would say the first place to start is understanding that there probably is a problem and that if you want to address it, because what makes a good or bad business is not whether or not you've got modern day slavery, it's whether you're prepared to look and what will you do when you find the problems that are occurring. So for anyone who's there, I would, I would encourage anyone to reach out to us through Slave Free Alliance and we can try and help at whatever level and size that a, a business is um, to address this issue obviously the bigger the business the the bigger the opportunity to make a bigger impact would be but at any level any business can start to get to a stage where they are working towards a slave-free supply chain okay
1: thanks tim and and how can how can business leaders or entrepreneurs or, or leaders listening to this podcast how can they
0: get involved in supporting the work of hope for Justice? Yeah, so we say with with all things, there are three core areas you can get involved in. It would be mainly your time, the treasure that you have, and your talent. So everyone is involved in doing something, and whatever that something looks like, if it's connected to something that you're passionate about, you can make a bigger impact. So if you've got someone who's just setting up a business, and they're looking about trying to make sure that their products and services are slave-free, that could be the slave-free alliance that we've talked about. If it's someone who's saying, well, actually, maybe I could give a bit more time. It could be that someone comes in, they volunteer within their gifts and abilities that they have. We've got a range of opportunities to try and work with individuals to help. Some of that could be very basic, right right through to the more complexities of some of the data systems and tech solutions that we're trying to create to help address this issue. But it also could be that people might want to give. And they could give personally and through to hopeforjustice.org. Or they might want to give from their business or from a foundation that they have. Probably the, the most complex aspect of what we're trying to do is not in the helping of individuals. It's in like the raising of funds to be able to help individuals. Like What I described in terms of the pressure to try and raise funds, That's that for me is the hardest part of what we do because it requires people to give of what they have to help support us for people that they may never get to meet. Right. But the impact that we can bring through it is is marked. So time, treasure, and talent—they're the three core areas that people can help us with.
1: Fantastic, thanks, Tim. And I just want to spend a few moments, just kind of, I suppose, focusing on, on you as a as a CEO. And you know, you're leading an incredible organisation, which you know is incredibly rewarding. I, I can imagine in many ways, but also incredibly challenging. And I'm sure, like all CEOs, there's some days where you may wake up thinking, you know. Why am I here? What am I doing? So as a CEO of Hope for Justice, what is it that motivates and drives you?
0: I think for most people who are CEOs, you have to come in with an optimistic outlook. You have to believe in the possibility that you have the ability to change. You know, you're constantly facing what might seem insurmountable mountains. You know, how do we fund things? How do we get the right staff and team? How do we work with governments? How do we get businesses to care? How do we change society as a whole in what we're doing? So you have to go in going, this may feel such a massive issue. How can we try and address this? But there has to be something within you that you start every day going, I'm going to make a difference today in whatever I'm doing. I'm going to give it my absolute best. And irrespective of whatever comes my way, I'm going to try and throw my whole self in, give everyone my best minute when I'm with anyone, make sure that I do the best of my ability. And like you've described, some days, you know, you you can feel inadequate. You can feel like you don't have everything that you need. Most days you're lacking in something that you need. You know, it could be a challenge financially. And I I think if I think this last year, the biggest challenge I had, i You know, I I was able to bring in just over £209,000 in one day to meet the financial needs that we need. Well, you know, when you're faced with those types of pressures, where I I, I recently was given an excerpt from Elon Musk's book, and he described about from 2007 having to try and pull out rabbits out of hats and then described how it's not just one rabbit out of a hat, it's a stream of rabbits out of a hat that if you don't find them, you're dead. And I think as CEOs, sometimes you can have unrealistic expectations placed upon you that you would be able to pull rabbits out of hats at every stage, that you would be able to find a solution, um, that you would be able to be the solution for everyone. And I think there's there's a real sense in being honest with yourself and going, I can give this my best, but I can't pretend to be something that I'm not. I'm going to need to lean on every single person that we have on our team, and I I am not looking to to run a dictatorship. I'm looking to empower people with the responsibility that they have to be able to bring change. So recruiting and retaining volunteers, bringing individuals who can give financially, helping to have an amazing team that are motivated. It just requires you to recruit the best people and allow them to do the best job that they can and trusting that you can only give it your best. So I think I think for me yeah, this no matter how you start every day and what the challenges are, just facing every challenge and not running away from it, dealing with the complexities. And almost, um, you know, we treat most people who, who try and connect with us, go, the scale of this problem, 49.6 million people, how in the heck do you think you're going to be able to deal with this? This has been going on, slavery has been going on for, for millennia. How do you think that you can deal with this? Surely what you're trying to do is impossible. And you know, what we try to do is we treat impossible with the words that Muhammad Ali said that impossible is temporary. Impossible is nothing. Impossible is a big word thrown around by small minded men who find it easier to live in a world that they've been given. That impossible is absolutely nothing. Impossible is a dare. And we dare to believe that we can actually make a bigger difference. So treating that word impossible almost as an imposter. needs to be thrown out and believing every single day we're moving one step closer to living in a world free from slavery that's what i've got to do and that's i have to have my face like flint to believe that this will happen in my lifetime
1: so how do you deal with the the emotional drain and the kind of mental health impact of being a ceo of such an emotionally charged cause
0: yeah i mean that is that is a mother of all questions in terms of how do you deal with the emotion in it? I took a team to go and climb Mike Kilimanjaro in tw- end of 2019, just before the pandemic. And we were part of our program in Ethiopia in Addis I was with one of the, the little girls, an 11-year-old girl who was being reunited with her dad that she hadn't seen for six months. I was absolutely broken. You know, I've got children myself. And to see a dad who hasn't seen his daughter for six months, he's traveled 300 miles to be reunited with her. The joy, the absolute amazing blessing it is to bring children back to families. This last year, we've had just over 1,600 children that we brought back to their mums and dads. And feeling like if I can do this job just that little bit better, maybe I could see more people set free. Maybe if I don't do my job better, better, maybe more people won't find freedom. The emotional nature of it is an absolute roller coaster. You know, we give training to our staff and team who are dealing on the front line because they're dealing with such complex situations in such very difficult circumstances. Tragically, last September, we had one of our staff killed in Ethiopia. Having to deal with with staff members who passionately care about this issue and are dealing with such risk. There's no easy solution to how do you deal with the pressure? How do you deal with the emotion in it? I think in myself, I've got a faith and I, I trust God that I will be able to do the best that I can, but I also wrestle with the reality of my humanity, that I am just one person. What can I do? How can I be able to bring help and how can I do the best? And some days it's a quiet shed and a tear in a, in a room away from everyone. Because people expect you to have it all together. They expect you to have the answers. And I just need to be honest with everyone and and give the best I can in the moment that I'm in. And understand that in dealing with trauma and people who've been really hurt, we need to have almost like skin like a rhino and a heart like a baby. Mm. We need to allow our heart to be broken with this issue, but not let things penetrate, not let the, the challenges on a daily basis get to you to the point that would affect your heart from being able to be broken for this issue? Uh, it probably isn't the best of answers, but it's, it's really where, where I wrestle with yeah. this, kind of on a daily basis, the emotion of it all.
1: No, thank you, Tim. That's, um, that's really honest and really vulnerable of you. And I think, I think that sometimes as uh CEO, as you say, you know, we've, we've got to have the answer. We've almost got to be the answer. And people forget that we're humans as well. And actually, we're dealing with 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 the fallout as much as anyone else so what do you do to kind of get away from from that pressure what do you do for fun or to relax or how do you find some do you ever find any me time at the moment with kids and busy life
0: yeah it's it's hard and and i think i think you've got to understand that some things are problems to be solved and some things are tensions to be managed and if you've got a if you've got a season where you're having to give more, you know a lot of people have tried to tell me you know there there's this balance that you can try and go for. In my experience, I don't I think balance is a lie. I think you know there's seasons where you're having to give more in your business. There's seasons where you have to give more to your family. There's seasons where you you have to be away from your family. There's seasons where your family is and you're away from from what you're doing. I, I think for me, a lot of it is about managing tensions that come through and timing tensions and timing so that there are times when my kids need more from me uh my wife is away this week so my kids need more from me this week than they would do on an average week but then there are weeks when i'm away and i need to make sure that when i'm back i'm fully present when i'm with them because you can be home the whole time but your mind can be somewhere completely different right and about being fully present with them when you can so um, for family at uh, their first and foremost, the most important thing in my life. Um, I would say for fun, I try and get together with friends. I try and as much as possible, get, go watch a movie. I actually don't mind going and, and, and kind of getting time away from on my own, whether that be go for a walk, um, into the mountains or into the, into the forest or wherever it might be a, a space where I can get time on my own just to compose my thoughts. If I really get good amounts of time, I, I love reading. and I, I'll, I, But I, I need to have quiet time and I need to not have real pressure that distracts you. Otherwise, you're just reading words, but it's not actually going in. But I, I think for anyone who's listening, who who I would want to leave everyone with this impression that no matter what you're going to go and do in life, there's going to be pressures coming upon you. If you can manage the tension, that's good. But you shouldn't ever give 100% of you to anything. You should look to try and give your best moment while you're with people and know that, you know, you're going to have to manage those tensions through life. And while your kids are young, you're going to have to give more time to them when they're older, they might not want to spend time with you. You might be the other way wanting to spend time with them, but just managing the challenges as they come on a daily basis.
1: Brilliant. Great answer. Thank you, Tim. And a final question that we ask all of our guests, as much as I'd like to ask you a lot more questions. What's the one piece of advice you would give your younger self?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I think, from what I know now, the thing I would say is be kind to yourself. I think for me, I'm I motivate myself more than anyone else would motivate me. I'm not looking for someone to to kind of challenge me more than I'm challenge myself. I'd, pr- I'd, pr- I'd be the first person who'd be the hardest on myself more than anything. But I I would say to be kind to yourself and kindness. Is allowing for you to, like you've described, give yourself breaks, give yourself time away, do things that you enjoy, that make you laugh, that that you can have fun on. Enjoy the experience. You know, I, I, if I was to say how many cities I've been into, and I've seen a conference center, I've seen a hotel room, and I've seen an airport, and that's it. You know, you blissfully look at a taxi window as you're on the way through to a meeting, a presentation, uh, or whatever. You can you can miss the moment that you're in. And I would say be kind is also by being kind to make sure that you're healthy, that you're eating the right things, that, you are, that you're, you're seeing that if you go wrong in any way, it will affect everything that you do in your life. And I think a lot of people that I've known who've had issues in their life, they've allowed their focus and intention to not be around kind of being the best you that they, you can be. They've, they've kind of almost wanted to live a false life, a life that wasn't them that they weren't enjoying that they got themselves to a point so far of the journey that they kind of wondered how they'd ever got there so for me i would say could if i could go back to my younger self i'd say possibly slow down enjoy the journey be kind with yourself and then just know that that your best is good enough that you know there isn't this sense that you what you're doing is not the best that you can your best is good enough
1: brilliant Tim Nelson thank you so much for spending this time on the podcast with me it's been a real privilege bless you and your team and all you're doing you're doing an incredible work and yeah for those listening we'll put we'll put some links in the show notes about how you can get involved and find out more about the work of hope for justice so Tim have a blessed rest of the day and
0: rest of the week thanks so much Dan appreciate your time
1: we hope you enjoyed this episode of the wonderful leaders podcast To be part of the community, join us on Slack and follow us on Instagram. Simply look us
0: up at wonderfulleaders.com. See you there.